Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we bring them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. What are we watching this week? This week, Sarah, we are back at 20th Century Fox with the film The Undying Monster uh, from 1942, also known as The Hammond Mystery. Like John Hammond of Jurassic Park? Maybe. I, I'm wearing a Jurassic Park t-shirt without knowing that this was going to be thematic in any <laughs> sort of way. This is great. <laughs> so is the undying monster the fleas and the flea circus that inspired him to create the Jurassic Park? I feel like fleas <laughs> are probably the exact opposite of undying. But once you get an infestation, you can't get rid of it. Is that true? That is correct. Okay. It is factual. I don't really know anything about fleas. <laughs> so what I do know, Sarah, is that this film is based on a novel. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about that novel. Do you <laughs> have any information? Can you enlighten me in any way? I, I definitely can. Um, the novel in question is titled The Undying Monster, colon, a Tale of the Fifth Dimension. Okay. <laughs> that's that's a very it's different so subtitle than The Hammond Mystery. <laughs> um, this novel was published in 1922 and was written by Jesse Douglas Carrierwish. Okay. I've never heard of this guy. Uh, what else has he done? Uh, she oh. has um, done some things, but most of what she wrote seems to have been lost to the sands of time, given that she wrote for Penny Dreadfuls. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was a regular contributor to the Weekly Tale Teller, which was a Penny Dreadful with tons of short stories aimed at men. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means, but it was specified in the research, so... Well, I know that, like, there were things like men's magazines back then where, like, the cover would be some painting of, like, some buff dude in a ripped shirt wrestling a crocodile or something. Like, those kind of, like, men's adventure things. So maybe that's what they mean. I have no I, idea. The thing that sort of confuses me is that, like, it was the 20s. Wasn't everything aimed at men? Carrie Wish wrote romance, historical fiction, and Arabian tales. Oh. With most of her stories being set in North Africa or... India slash generic East. Gotcha. So all of her writings seem to fit fairly well within, like, an Orientalist uh, aesthetic. Yeah, she's writing colonial adventure stories. Yeah, there we go. If it's Africa and India and stuff, it's, it's, you know, probably a lot of stories about people named, like, Sir John wearing, like, khakis going on, like, jungle adventures and safari hats. hats. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, she was born in the UK, so okay, that I, I forgot that. to mention that yeah. at the top. No, nope, um, that explains it. Of the stuff she wrote, she wrote these short stories, but she also wrote some novels, including Miss Haroon al-Rashid in 1917. Oh, that's interesting. Haroon al-Rashid was um, a like the sultan during like the golden age of Baghdad. Oh. Like, his vizier was Jafar. Like, he's the star of most of the, like... Arabian Tales of Scheherazade. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The following year, 1918, she wrote The Girl from Kurdistan. And she also, um, so many stories about Arabian Nights and such that it was collected in 1934 in the collection titled Babylonian Nights Entertainments. Okay. So it feels like the undying monster, Terror in the Fifth Dimension... A tale. A oh, tale. okay. A tale of the fifth dimension. <laughs> uh, feels like a bit of an outlier in this body of, a of work. Combo then. Breaker. Yeah, a little bit, but it does kind of fit in a little bit. So you you might have noticed with these other novels, you know, Miss Harun Al Rashid, the girl from Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. You know, she writes stories that feature female protagonists. Okay, which is interesting, especially if she wrote for Penny Dreadful, aimed at men. Mm-hmm. And that trend continues in The Undying Monster. 
It was published in 1922, though it was, like, regularly republished and widely read. Okay. And it tells the story of a family curse of lycanthropy on the Hammond family and the female occult detective named Miss Luna Bartondale, who goes to investigate. Okay. And I want to read this so bad. She's basically hired by the family. There, there's been, like, these, this mystery of a monster in the family woods, and Oliver Hammond is attacked, and his sister calls for Luna to, like, come solve this mystery, help us, whatever, and then it's revealed that it's a curse of lycanthropy upon the Hammond family. Um, and it's kind of described as a classic of its genre, its genre being this kind of gothic detective tale, okay. which is interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of this book before, so it's it interesting. It sounds that, pretty rad. It, it's interesting, like, describing it, like, as a classic that was widely read, because I guess at some point or another it fell out of vogue. vogue. And what's interesting here is it's about a guy turning into a werewolf monster and turning back. He's temporarily cured through hypnotism. Okay. But it's in the 20s, and, like, as we've kind of discussed in other werewolf-focused episodes, like Werewolf of London or The Wolfman, there's no, like, defining piece of literature for werewolves in the same way that there is for vampires with Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Carrie Wish kind of puts together in this novel, it fits close, you know, it's kind of close. But for some reason, you know, it's in the 20s and it doesn't really continue in vogue. You know, maybe it's because it's a Penny Dreadful kind of story. Maybe because it features a female protagonist with the name Luna... Bartendale, like Luna's a pretty like <laughs> yeah, I fucking love it for a werewolf yeah, story character's name. It feels like this. This isn't a super accurate allegory, but it might have had a similar public opinion as Twilight in the way of it being like cheesy fluff, you know, widely read, but not not making a, a huge impact on like the wider literature wider literary world? Well, yeah. I mean, given that it's a penny dreadful, it was probably pretty ignored by literary critics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is we probably know Dracula's as much of a classic today because of the fact that it was adapted into numerous films as anything else, and right? Plays. And plays and things, right? Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like a kind of an unusual book for the time, sort of mixing you know, your lady detective stuff with your gothic mansion kind of stuff of, like, the aristocratic family with a bad secret, but mixed in with, like, some horror stuff with the werewolf things. Like, Mm -hmm. sounds like an interesting mix. I don't know if, like, Twilight is really, like, the best comparison, given that, like, I think Twilight's reputation has, like, not just to do with the fact that it's, like, werewolves and women focused, but also the, like, YA nature of it too right and like it being like a romance thing as well and stuff like but yeah i mean it's just whenever you pile on like more than one disrespected genre upon another you're gonna end (laughs) up with something that yeah like isn't going to be very highly thought of i guess yeah regardless of how popular it is well even like because of how popular sure it is yeah you have that backlash right yeah so that's the novel this film is is based on but just as you and I had not heard of this novel before today, I had not heard of this movie before doing this podcast. Yeah, neither had I. Um, based on the plot synopsis you gave for the novel, the movie seems similar, okay. but I think you're going to be maybe disappointed or frustrated in at least one element of it, um, because the detective character is split into two characters Hmm. as like a man and woman team instead of just a woman. So the Undying Monster was designed as a follow-up to Dr. Renault's Secret, uh, which 20th Century Fox had released earlier in the year and had been uh, mildly successful. And like that film, Undying Monster shows a continued trend on the part of 20th Century Fox for copying their competitors Hmm. um, instead of developing their own 
style in terms of their horror movie output. So Undying Monster was produced by Fox's B-movie division, and the script by veteran screenwriters Lily Hayward and Michael Jacoby shows influences from Universal's The Wolfman, mm-hmm. MGM's The Thin Man, and Fox's own The Hound of the Baskervilles. Sure, I can see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, you're taking the basic premise of Hound of the Baskervilles with a... Uh, Detective. A, well, an aristocratic family in a mansion home on, like, the Scottish moors that's having problems with a supernatural monster who call in a detective from the city. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's yeah. Hound of the Baskervilles. And then you have the, like, kinethropy elements from Wolfman, which, I mean, they're in the original story, but surely the success of Wolfman explains why... Undying Monster is getting adapted now, 20 years after the book came out, and not at any time beforehand, right? Yeah. Um, And then the Thin Man element, in terms of what they were ripping off there, is where they're taking the male-female detective team from, with Nick and Nora Charles, and that kind of back-and-forth relationship. Okay. It's also interesting that this is the second horror movie we've seen from the newly created 20th Century Fox And both of them have relied on adapting a literary source. Yes. And when the horror genre was really just kind of getting its legs still in its infancy, like 20 years ago or whatever, studios kept adapting literature to try to give it some sense of prestige. Mm -hmm. I think in Fox's case, like looking at the way they're adapting the literature, but also the way that they're kind of copying ideas from other places like that was one of our things with Dr. Renault is it wasn't very original even though we liked it um I think what we're seeing is a lack of I don't want to say like a lack of originality but certainly a desire to play it safe by copying elements that are tried and true whether that's taking a plot from a book that's mm-hmm. already been successful and also taking these other cinematic elements from other places right yeah not wanting to be not wanting to put their neck out too far in this genre that, you know, they haven't had a lot of experience in. So Undying Monster was directed by John Brom, who's a director who has something of a cult following among modern critics. He was born Hans Brom in 1893 in Hamburg, and he started out as a theater actor, but rose to become a resident director in the Berlin Theater after World War I. When Hitler rose to power, Brom fled the country, Uh, directing his first feature film in 1936. Uh, That was Broken Blossoms, a remake of the D.W. Griffith film. Where did he make that? In the U.K. Okay. Uh, Eventually he moved to Hollywood. His most famous film in this early phase of his career is probably his fifth film called Let Us Live. It was a movie which told the true story of two men wrongly accused of murder and nearly executed in Massachusetts. Now, the film's release was actually protested by the state government of Massachusetts, who tried to pressure the studio not to release the movie. Because of the wrongful... Yeah, it was... It was... It 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 reflects poorly on the justice system? Yeah, it it was thought to be an embarrassment to the state, that it was um, presented Massachusetts in a bad light. Undying Monster was Brahms' ninth film in a career that would include an acclaimed 1944 remake of The Lodger, which was the Victorian thriller that launched Alfred Hitchcock's career in 1927. Um, Also the period film noir Hangover Square in 1945. The Raymond Chandler adaptation The Brasher Doubloon in 1947, and numerous episodes of classic television, such as 15 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, two episodes of The Outer Limits, including the influential Bolero Shield, 12 episodes of The Twilight Zone, and 14 episodes of the various Uncle series in the 1960s. Uh, And then he passed away in 1982. Cool. So this is when he's kind of like an intermediate filmmaker in yes. terms of his career. You yes. know, he's not just starting out, he has his legs. Yeah, but, but his biggest stuff is still in his future. Yeah. Cool. Brahms worked with cinematographer Lucien Ballard to bring an expressionist noir sensibility to the look of Undying Monster. Ballard was born in 1908 and began working in film in 1929, initially loading trucks at Paramount Uh, then becoming a camera assistant and later cinematographer for director Joseph von Sternberg. 
1941, he worked for Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks, doing second, doing second unit work and assisting cinematographer Greg Toland on The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell. <laughs> After working with Brahms on The Undying Monster, he reunited with him for The Lodger. Uh, it was on that set that Ballard met and married actress Merle Oberon, and when her face was scarred after a near-fatal car crash, Ballard invented the Obi, which is a bright light that could be mounted directly to the side of the camera, uh, thus reducing the appearance of facial blemishes, scars, and wrinkles in the subject's skin, because you have this bright light that's very close to the subject's face, so it mm -hmm. kind of washes all that out. Ballard shot the film The Killing for Stanley Kubrick in 1956. He was also the cinematographer for the original version of The Parent Trap in 1961. He was nominated for an Oscar for The Caretakers in 1963, and he shot both the original version of True Grit and Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch in 1969. Uh, and he passed away in 1988. The score for The Undying Monster is by David Raxon, who is called the grandfather of film music by some. He worked on... By some. By some. You know, by some. By some. Not <laughs> by all, but not by few. <laughs> by some. He worked on the score... Uh, his first work in film music was on the score for Modern Times by Charlie Chaplin in 1936. He also composed the music for Hound of the Baskervilles in 1939, uh, Dr. Renault's Secret in 1942, but his big, famous thing is he did the score for Laura in 1944. Uh, specifically, uh, in addition to the whole score, he's most famous for the theme from Laura, which became the second most recorded song of the 20th century. Wow. His other big hit is the theme from the film The Bad and the Beautiful, which was also, yeah, a huge hit. Also returning from Dr. Renault's Secret is makeup artist Ben Nye, who is the head of 20th Century Fox's makeup department. Um, he did, yeah, like all the makeup, similar to the way that Jack Pierce was the head of Universal's makeup department. Mm -hmm. uh, but today, Ben Nye might be more famous for having created the Ben Nye Makeup Company in 1967 upon his retirement. Yeah, the makeup on Noel to make him look monkeyish mm -hmm. was really well done. It's also worth noting in that case that Ben Nye, um, as the head of 20th Century Fox's makeup department, he trained his replacement, uh, John Chambers, who became the head of uh, Fox's makeup department upon Nye's retirement in 1967. And it was in 1968 that Fox did Planet of the Apes with makeup by John oh. Chambers. Interesting. I'm really curious to see the transformation. You kind of already said that there's a transformation on screen, <laughs> so I'm really curious. So, as I mentioned earlier, the role of the detective has been split into two parts, uh, a male and female part, and the role of the Scotland Yard scientist, who's sort of inspired in equal parts by Sherlock Holmes and Nick Charles, is actor James Ellison, who was 32 years old at the time that he made this film. He spent most of the 1930s playing the sidekick to Hopalong Cassidy in Paramount's series of Western films, but a run-in with Cecil B. DeMille led to Ellison being unofficially condemned to B-movies for the rest of his career. Ellison appeared in a film that DeMille did where, um, even though the film did very well, DeMille hated Ellison's performance and basically said, like, don't let that guy ever appear in, like, any movie above a B-movie. What an asshole. Yeah, Cecil B. DeMille was a, a right jerk. Now, um, his sidekick in the movie, the Nora to his Nick, as it were, is played by 46-year-old actress Heather Thatcher. It, it sounds like they're trying to go for, like, the, like, bantery, uh -huh. you know, thing, male-female couple thing, but I don't know if it really works in this film. 
Um, yeah, you need two really, really good actors, or at the very least, two actors that have really good chemistry with each other in order for that to really come across. I think the other thing that people forget is, like, when you look at Nick and Nora Charles in the Thin Man films, um, they're equals, mm -hmm. um, and when you try to do the bickering male-female relationship, but you, I don't know, like, introduce a power imbalance there, it changes how that dynamic comes across a lot quicker. Yeah. So Heather Thatcher, who's the actress here, uh, she was a um, former exotic dancer and theater actress from London who had been acting on screen since the 1910s. Her real film career kind of picked up in the 1930s, but it never really picked up a lot of steam. Uh, she was always kind of in minor roles or B-movies, um, and not like a ton of stuff either. Um, her acting career ended in the 1950s, and she had about 46 credits, uh, which like averages out to less than a film a year, which for actors in this period is not a lot, right? Mm -hmm. The romantic lead in the film is played by 33-year-old actress Heather Angel, a British actress who had essentially played this exact same role in the 1932 version of Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, she also appeared as Constance in the 1935 version of The Three Musketeers. In 1940, she was Kitty Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. And in 1944, she would appear as one of the characters in Alfred Hitchcock's film Lifeboat. She did voice work later in her career for Disney's Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. Oh, neat. Uh, she was Alice's older sister, and she was um, the darling's mother in Peter Pan. Mother darling. Yes. Opposite her as um, the... Male lead? The male lead, Oliver Hammond, is 29-year-old American actor John Howard. Howard had been acting on film since 1934, gradually making his way up the food chain, as it were. Uh, he'd appeared as the lead in Let Them Live uh, in 1937 for the same director. And that same year, he took over the role of Bulldog Drummond in Paramount's long-running series of films starring that character. Uh, he was the 10th actor to play the role. Uh, he did seven films in the part more than any other actor who played the role. So he's the Roger Moore of... Bulldog, Bulldog Drummond, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's perhaps best known today for his role in 1940's The Philadelphia Story, where he plays uh, Catherine Hepburn's fiancé, competing with Cary Grant for her affections. Hmm. He served as a lieutenant junior grade in the U.S. Navy in World War II, and took command of his ship when it struck a mine and the captain was killed, saving the crew and earning the Navy Cross. Would that be after this movie? Yes. In okay. fact, um, I believe The Undying Monster was the last film he did before going to war. Okay. In a very minor role in this film as Dr. Jeff Colbert is Bramwell Fletcher, who we'll recognize as having played the young assistant who goes mad in the prologue of 1932's The Mummy. Oh, good for him. He's yeah. still going. Yeah. He had actually married uh, Dracula star Helen Chandler in 1935. Uh, which was a marriage that lasted until 1940. And then in 1942, the year this movie was made, he married Diana Barrymore, who was the daughter of John Barrymore, and thus the aunt of Drew Barrymore. So The Undying Monster was released on November 27th, 1942. Uh, it was given the title The Hammond Mystery in the UK to downplay the horror elements uh, <laughs> because they didn't want to earn that H rating from the BBFC. Today, the film is available as part of the Fox Horror Classics Collection, Volume 1, alongside the other Brahms films, The Lodger and Hangover Square, which are a thriller and a period noir, respectively. <laughs> uh, also, recently, in 2016, it was given a Blu-ray release by Kino. Oh, that bodes well. Kino is usually like, if it's not Criterion, it's Kino. Sure, yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing what this movie is like. Yeah, interesting. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, Ben's told you where you can find it. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the undying monster slash the Hammond mystery from 1942, directed by John Brahms. 
See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Undying Monster from 1942, directed by John Brom. So, Sarah, this movie had a lot of um, narrative tropes that I associate with you in terms of, like, things that you like. Um, It's got some of that gothic horror sort of atmosphere with the big house. Yeah. Uh, It's got um, lycanthropy. It's got... (laughs) You like movies with lycanthropes in them, I'm just saying. Yeah, um, but it, it's just funny because lycanthropy is not akin to gothic horror in my brain. Right. That's more like hauntings. Sure, yeah. Did you like this movie? I don't know what I thought of this movie, honestly. I really like the look of it. Yes, I think first and foremost, the main thing about this movie is that it's gorgeous. Yes. But as far as the story... I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I didn't dislike it. Mm. Um, what did you think of it? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. Like, I, I liked the look of it, and I, I think it was really well made, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the story, uh, do a bit of a plot summary, and then we can tear it to pieces. Oof. Or go into it in more depth. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. So the film opens with some very spooky lighting and mysterious framing, and it's awesome. You know, it really hooks you in quite quickly. And it opens on Helga Hammond waiting for her brother Oliver to come home from his friend's place, Dr. Colbert. I'm pretty sure actually it's Colbert. They said Colbert through the whole movie with with a hard T. Stephen Colbert strikes again. Colbert. Walton, the butler, warns Helga of the Hammond family curse, which she doesn't believe in. So, throughout the course of the movie, we learn that this curse includes the Hammond monster, some kind of creature of sorts that is so legendary that people are actually coming to the Hammond grounds to try to trap. And it's this monster that, according to the curse, kills Hammonds, and if The creature does not succeed in killing a Hammond. The person goes mad and commits suicide. Yeah. So after they hear screams and howls outside, Helga and servants go and search the grounds and they find Oliver, who has fallen at the bottom of um, a cliff because they're on the seaside. And they also find um, a villager named Kate, uh, mauled and seemingly in a coma. Scotland Yard sends Robert Curtis and sidekick... Christy, they're sent by Scotland Yard to investigate the curse in general, but also like, hey, there's been maulings, maybe we should investigate this. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly, if I'm talking about Scotland Yard, we're set in England. Yes. Um, just want to point out that Oliver and Robert are very American, even in their accents. You know, yeah, at least they... Oliver's trying to do a bit of a mid-Atlantic type deal, mm-hmm. but Robert's American through and through. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's a little strange that everyone does a British accent except for, like, the two male leads. Yes, who also look very similar. Robert wears a bow tie and Oliver wears a regular tie. <laughs> the other thing I'll just point out about Robert and Christy is Christy is all about female intuition and spooks and fully believes in the curse and is excited to go ghost hunting. Mm-hmm. She's a woman after my own heart. And Curtis doesn't believe in the curse. He's here to find a scientific reason for whatever the heck is going on. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very emphasized his sort of identity as like a scientific detective. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a Sherlock Holmes and Watson dynamic going on here. Mm-hmm. Christy is clearly intelligent, um, but she's our comic relief. Yeah, and she's, she's clearly like there to give Curtis someone to talk to. And, and explain, you know, the clues and, and stuff, which is what Watson is there for as well, right? Yeah. Like... <laughs> so the family doctor, Dr. Colbert, 
um, is looking after Kate, but she does die by the end of the film. By the middle of the film, really. By, yeah, by the middle of the film. Um, so some of the clues that we get come from the family crypt, which is in the basement of the house proper. You should keep those buildings separate, guys. I'm just saying. If you don't want ghosts up in your building, keep those places separate. A torn scarf and the butler Walton trying to cover up some evidence, um, as well as wolf hair found uh, that mysteriously disappears upon examination. Yes, and as we've been told so many times in these movies, there hasn't been a wolf in England since the Middle Ages. <laughs> so it becomes clear that everyone isn't really telling Christy and Curtis the full story. Um, the servants, the doctor, everyone. The Hammond monster attacks again and goes after Helga Hammond, uh, a chase ensues, and after being shot, the monster turns back into the dying Oliver Hammond. Then we cut to an epilogue where Dr. Colbert explains that he's been trying to cure Oliver of lycanthropy through cobra venom? Yeah, the idea was supposed to be like the shock of the venom was going to fix the, quote, kink in his brain, unquote. Yeah, what? It's also established that it's the cobra venom that was in Oliver getting transferred to Kate being what killed her. Yes. I mean, the maul as well, the mauling, but yeah. But yeah, so this mental disorder of lycanthropy is handed down the Hammond family line from father to son and so forth. The servants fully believed that the Hammond men were turning into werewolves, um, that it wasn't just a delusion. But given that we see wolf hair, and Oliver fully transformed, um, it's clear that this isn't quite a mental disorder, or at the very least, um, the explanation is given that it's Oliver's own belief in lycanthropy that physically transformed him. Yeah, I'm not sure what the movie's trying to get at with that ending, and that's a big part of my, my ambiguous feelings towards this Oof. movie. Yeah, but, you know, Dr. Colbert was sure that he would have cured him eventually, the end. Right. So this film is very, to me, it's very intriguing. It's very moody through its filmmaking, the mm -hmm. music, especially. The music is very good here. Acting is fairly fine. Like, yep. it's good. Yeah, yeah. Good performances. You have this very high contrast lighting, uh, excellent sort of chiaroscuro visual style, um, a lot of moving camera. Yeah. Uh, way more than we're kind of used to seeing. Um, the compositions, one thing I noticed, used a lot of depth, mm -hmm. a lot of sort of foreground, background, mid-ground, rather than kind of the flat compositions you normally see in B-pictures and, and low-budget films. Would Citizen Kane have come out by this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay, so I, I think we can see some Citizen Kane influences here. And yeah, all of these things really enhance the mood of mm. the picture. Mm -hmm. um, so visually, it's, it's, it's really great. Yeah. Um, it's just, so for me, and I'll be interested to hear what you think of this, but for me, on a narrative level, the story displays, like, genre dysphoria. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't know... What it is. What genre it is, exactly. Um, from the art design of the credits, mm -hmm. and, like, the style of the cinematography, and, like, the nature of the climax, I think it's clear that this was intended to evoke and compete with the universal horror movies. Oh, definitely. But the story is mostly concerned with the duo of Curtis and Christie, who are 100% operating as the Holmes and Watson of this Hound of the Baskervilles variant, which is what the story is. And a decent amount of screen time is spent showing Curtis as a forensic scientist, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty impressive I thought for a 1940s movie that's set in 1900 to like show us how like running a spectrograph on something works and like taking us kind of step by step through his process. But doing that means that the story's kind of very squarely in the detective mold until the finale when it becomes a monster movie. Yeah. And like the beginning is like horror. Yes. But then we like head into Detective Town. Yeah. It it really reminded me of Dark Eyes of London in this oh, way. Oh, interesting. And also, like, a little bit, I think a little bit of what um, 
Murders in the Rue Morgue kind of wanted to be a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair, too. I mean, I know it's based on its own source material, mm-hmm. but, like, I've never read The Undying Monster. I have read Hound of the Baskervilles. There's also been a million movie versions of Hound of the Baskervilles, and this is Hound of the Baskervilles. I... It's been years since I've seen version, the adaptation of Hand of the Baskervilles that they're clearly, like, ripping off of. Yeah, which is the um, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce version. Yeah. So I, I wish I had seen it more recently so I'd be able to compare these a little bit better because I think that that would be key into determining, honestly, if we consider this horror. Because I feel like this is just a great example of the tenuous relationship between horror and and a thriller. Yes. Because if anything, this is Sherlock Holmes horror, mm-hmm. if it's horror. The big difference comes at the ending, right? Yes, this Cause, epilogue. Because, like, well, even a little before that, one thing I do want to say about the version of Hound of the Baskervilles, so much of the cast is the same. I was oh. looking up, like, you know the, the, the servant, not the butler, but the older woman mm-hmm. who's in with him? She plays the same part. In Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh. Like, most of the servants are the same. You know, Helga Hammond is in Hound of the Baskervilles in basically the same part. Like, other than Holmes and Watson, it's basically the same cast. Huh. Um, but yeah, in Hound of the Baskervilles, the whole point is that the Hound isn't real. Mm-hmm. That that Holmes discovers that it's a hoax done with, like, phosphorescent paint and, you know, some other th- other stuff. So that's the real difference here is in this one, the monster is real. Maybe? Yeah. Like that ending is so weak because in a mystery movie, in a detective movie, the point of the ending is to explain everything and clarify everything. And this ending confuses more than it clarifies. And I don't, the thing that makes it hard for me is I can't tell what, quite is going on here because it's one of three things either it was always intended from the beginning that it would be a delusion and then at some point in the movie's production they changed it to be a real monster because they wanted to like cash in on how successful wolfman was for Mm -hmm. instance or it was always a real monster and then at the last minute they changed it to say maybe it was a delusion because they wanted to scoop cat people or it was intentionally meant to be ambiguous because, like, that's another big difference between, say, a thriller and a horror movie is in, you know, a detective story, a Sherlock Holmes kind of story, you want everything to be explained. That's the point. But in horror, you know, the tension and the fear comes from the unknown, so it can be an asset to have an ambiguous ending. You know, so if it's a horror movie, an ambiguous ending is good if it's a detective movie and ambiguous ending is bad, but I can't really tell what they're trying to do here other than trying to have their cake and eat it too, basically. That's the phrase that kept coming to my mind as well. Um, I see what you're saying about like the ambiguity of an ending can add to the mystery and atmosphere of a horror film, but they don't really, in, in my opinion, they're tr- like they're making a point with this epilogue to fully explain what just happened. Yeah. To the point where like we are in a completely different location. We're in London. We're not even at the mansion. Um, we're in a completely different location, removed from the horror setting. And honestly, it just feels like it it shoots itself in the foot if it wants to be considered a horror movie. For me, the kind of two options were stealing from cat people, mm-hmm. or playing it so safe that it becomes overly tepid because they're not sure or confident in how they're making horror movies. This is the studio's second horror movie, as we kind of already said. You know, and the way the tone of that epilogue is, mm-hmm. um, it feels more like that second option. Because if they were ripping off cat people, or if they were trying to be ambiguous in a horror kind of way, the way that you do that is you go, you know... Well, it was all in his head. Or was it? Yeah. Right? That's the horror thing. You would bring up the fact that, oh yeah, we found wolf hair though. What about that? Dun dun dun. But they don't. The only stuff that contradicts that epilogue is the rest of the movie outside the epilogue. Within the epilogue scene, no contradictory evidence 
is mm. presented to this mm. idea that it was all a delusion, right? So it feels very tacked on. And in that case, it feels more like it's tacked on to tone down the whole... It feels like the way American horror movies were 10, 15 years ago, where every time we had a monster, we pulled off the mask and it was old man McGillicuddy, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing that... There's so many ways they could have handled it better, though. They could have said that he really was a monster, but we're going to say in our report that he was delusional, so as not to, like... Um, the reputation of the Hammonds. Right. Or, you know, or you could play with the ambiguity more in a lot of different ways. You could say that the reason why we see him transformed is like a cinematic choice to show us what he believed he was, except that it still doesn't work for that because the scenes where we see him, um, one of them, specifically the shot where he actually transforms, is from the point of view of other people. Yes. You know? Um, Wouldn't it have been cool if as he was like skulking through the woods or something like that we got a shot of like just oliver having a walk and he sees a reflection of himself in the full makeup right and because like this movie the talent behind the camera is evident yeah is evident and would have been able to do something complex like that yeah it you know the shots where it's just him going across the moors with helga in his arms it's fine for him to have the makeup on in those scenes because that's stuff where we're just with him and also we're still trying to like play it to the audience, right? But what if it was just a delusion, it should have been that once the cops got the lights on him, we would have just seen him, right? Something where he's in the makeup and we see his silhouette and it's all shaggy and furry and then the light comes on, but it's just him. That would right? have been so cool. But and yeah, it would have like underlined the tragic nature that's always in werewolf movies because if they, you know, we still have like a similar shot of him climbing up the cliff and people pulling guns on him. As soon as his face is revealed, it's just Oliver and people reacting like Oliver, what? And he like snarls and maybe slips and then cr- falls to his death. Yeah, you but- know, there could have been so much more juice here. Yeah. The movie just refused to make a choice between a fake werewolf or a real werewolf, the same way that it refuses to make a choice between whether it's a horror movie or a detective movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, if he, if this is a detective movie, the delusion ending is really the only ending that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because you can't, I don't think, have a detective, especially one who's as science-based as they want Curtis to be, and have an ending where werewolves are real. Yeah. Right? That doesn't really work. But on the other hand, if it's all fake, then you're not really making much of a horror movie, you know, unless unless you were structuring it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you wanted this to be horror and the werewolf's a delusion, the movie should be from Oliver Hammond's point of view, right? And him not being sure, you know, where was I that night and what's going on and, and that kind of thing, right? If you want the werewolf to be real and you want it to be a horror movie, it should have all been from Helga Hammond's point of view because we should have never called in detectives. It should have been her in the house trying to figure out, like, why are the servants being so cagey and what really happened with my brother and, you know, why is Kate dying and, you know, will I be next and, you know, how can I protect my brother and then, oh, my God, the monster is my brother. But by calling in the detectives, it changes the... um, Dynamic. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because now we're doing Mark of the Vampire. Yeah. Right? Like, pretty much on the nose, right? (laughs) I think this um, is also a really good example of how, you know, I understand why they went to a literary source, Mm -hmm. but this is another example of, like, how that can hamper find your hands to be doing something that you actually want to be doing because it's clear that the people behind the camera wanted to be doing something because the visuals aren't completely disconnected, but they're just a different interpretation of the narrative than what the narrative is trying to do. Yeah. The visuals, I mean, it's clear that like the crew of this movie were, were very talented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause visually this movie is extremely striking. Like, you know, I keep bringing up Hound of the Baskervilles. It's also clear that this movie is taking a lot of inspiration from Wolfman, that that's the other touchstone it's trying to compete with. Mostly things like the the issue of a, a troubled family legacy, the curse that's in the form of a poem that everyone insists on yeah. repeating. I uh, I skipped that. It's not even a good poem. No, it's 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 worse than the Wolfman poem. Um, and then of course the lycanthropy, right? Yeah. But the thing I noticed in this movie, if we want to talk about 
the creativity of the crew. Both movies have scenes of, you know, the werewolf walking around the moors with, you know, the whatever woman he's captured. They look better in this one. What's amazing about this movie is how much more expensive it looks than Wolfman, because this is still a B-movie. Um, but the sets are much more expansive and impressive uh, for the outdoor sets than in Universal's film. I think one of the things that helps a movie feel big is being able to, you know, pull the camera back and and have it be fairly far away from the characters and still have the world continue to exist, right? You think of the cheapest B-movies and they always are like, you get the feeling that if the camera panned left or right more than, you know, a couple degrees, we would see, like, <laughs> the the soundstage, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, this feels like, like a location film, like as if it had been shot on location, which right. it was not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, it goes to show that when you're the third biggest studio around, even your B-pictures look good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this movie, um, especially, like, on a technical level. I even enjoyed it, like, just watching it as a story. Like, I ended up liking... Helga. I really liked Helga. Oh, I was gonna say, I really like... I really ended up liking Curtis a lot more than I expected to. Yes. I will say, um, I kept waiting for Christy to kind of get a bit of a hero moment that never really came, because the movie does this thing where she's kind of scatterbrained a little, and, you know, is a bit of the comic relief, but she's still, like, clearly smart and clearly can, like, recognize a clue when she sees one and understand, like, what it means potentially. And so it felt like they kept doing these gags where people underestimated her. And it felt like the payoff was going to be that she would figure something out that no one else could have figured out, right? And that would justify why Curtis has this partner who he, like, there isn't really anything romantic between them. That's the thing. It isn't the Nick and Nora Charles thing. Like, you don't get that sense. She's just kind of also there. She's a sidekick. Yeah. So you kind of would need to justify that a bit. And they never really get around to that. So that was a bit of um, a, a disappointment. That being said, I don't know if you got this feeling, but I got the feeling that Fox clearly wanted this to be the first in a series of Curtis and Christie movies. Yeah, it felt like they were trying to set up their own Thin Man situation. Yeah. Or, um, franchise. Yeah, exactly. Um, the two of them reference, like, having been on adventures before, basically. They have, like, a pre-existing relationship with Scotland Yard, with, like, this older Scotland Yard, like, commissioner-type character who sends them out on the assignment. Like, you can very easily, I think, imagine in your mind the formula of what those movies would be, even though they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's... I don't know. It would have been interesting if there had been, like, more of these uh, movies with the two of them. I think they would have been good, too. Like, they, they had a, a, a chemistry between them that wasn't, like, um... I don't know. You could tell that they were both kind of enjoying what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it makes sense because when you look at a lot of the early Hollywood franchises, you know, your your Mr. Motos and your Thin Mans and, and that kind of thing, one of the things that you do see often is Hollywood adapting unrelated works as the foundation for movies in those series, you know? The first movie in the series would be based on uh, a novel with that character. But then, oh, I need to do a sequel. It's kind of like what happened with Die Hard, I guess, yeah. <laughs> right? So you're adapting things that weren't originally meant for it. And that's kind of what happened here, right? We've replaced the original protagonist of the Undying Monster novel with these two brand new characters because the idea is we want to do sequels with those characters, right? But at the end of the day, I think, like, the thing that you have to kind of wrap your head around watching this is, is this a detective movie with horror elements tacked on, or is this a horror movie with detective elements tacked on? It's tough, because the story they're basing this on mm -hmm. is both. Right. And it's definitely a situation of they wanted their to have their cake and eat it, too. I also think it's, it's getting harder to... Um, to parse these out, you know, we say in the very first episode that with horror, you know it when you see it, mm -hmm. but that's getting really difficult now that, like, the techniques of German Expressionism have kind of proliferated, and we have film noir really, like, coming into its own thing. So it's, it's becoming very difficult, but um, I think because it is honestly trying to be a horror movie, like, you can see that in the, in the film technique mm -hmm. in... The um, marketing, yeah. um, 
just because the narrative focuses a bit more on the detective side. I think because it starts and sort of ends, if you don't count the epilogue, with this horror element. I think it is trying to be horror. Yeah, it's interesting that the poster for this movie is just the monster holding the girl, right? Like, it's like, this is a horror movie. So I wonder, you know, at what point in production did they decide they weren't going to do a series of Curtis and Christie movies, right? Was it, like, after, you know, the movie was shot before it was marketed? Like, at what point did they abandon those plans? I think, you know, it's worth talking about um, the technical elements and how impressive they are. We've we've talked about the cinematography and the sets a lot. You briefly mentioned the music. Yeah, it, it was the soundtrack itself, the score itself... was used in the film. Mm -hmm. There were moments where, like, it was clear that the... You know in, like, the first Star Wars, like, A New Hope, first Star Wars, like, without John Williams' music, a lot of it wouldn't feel as, like, mythic. Yeah, it wouldn't have the same... It wouldn't have that energy. Yeah. The use of the music feels similar in its attempts to underline themes or, like, moments or... I think the word I'm actually looking for is emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a good score. Um, I was just happy to not hear library music. Yeah. Additionally, the editing in this movie was quite noticeable. Um, there was quite a lot of noticeable editing technique, which is unusual for Hollywood films of this period when editors were trained to be invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, here, there's a lot of like choppy, short, quick, fast cuts which you don't normally get, but which in a horror movie can really um, like heighten the tension or the amount of danger that you feel. Like, the first time um, at the start of the movie when Kate gets attacked by the monster, yeah. like, we just, we, we're with Helga, she hears some howling, and she's like, oh, what's that? And then we just cut to Kate, like, on the cliff getting attacked uh, from the monster's POV, and it's, like, very disarming. Like, at first I was like, wait, what's going on? And there's a couple of other editing choices like that through the movie, where the movie kind of throws you for a loop with the way it's cut together um, that sort of jars you out of your seat and makes you kind of sit up and need to pay attention for a moment. Uh, It was really interesting to see. It felt modern Mm -hmm. in a neat way, and it also felt like... um, like, as if they were peppering clues for us to notice as well. Um, there's a lot of that with, like, the compositions, too, where mm. you have, like, the servants watching in the background or hanging in a shot for a second after everyone else leaves so that your eyes kind of wander over to them and notice that they were listening in. Um, there's just a lot of attention to detail and work being put in by the director of this film that I haven't been used to seeing for a while in these movies. Yeah. So, additionally, I think the last thing we need to talk about in terms of the technical stuff is the monster makeup, which really only shows up clearly in, like, a couple of shots. It's reminiscent of the Wolfman, but kind of without the prosthetics. It's basically just the dog-faced boy kind of look, where it's just his face is covered in hair. There was a... The Mad Monster did that, too. Yes, I think there was less hair in Mad Bay Monster. It was like his face was kind of ringed with it. This was like everywhere, just everywhere hair. <laughs> Listen, man, dogs shed. Right. I do love all these ravenous horror movie werewolves who tear their victims to pieces while wearing full suits, though. Yeah. That's that's funny to me, because it's the same thing. It's It's the same thing as Wolfman. He's just wearing his full human clothes, but he's got fur everywhere. I mean, that goes back to Werewolf of London. Yes, exactly. The transformation scene was a neat new effect, though. Um, Mm -hmm. They took, basically, they superimposed his entire made-up face 
onto the shot and then faded out that superimposition till there was just his normal face. So it accomplishes kind of the same goal as doing... The fades that they were doing with Wolfman. Yeah, the the sort of shot-by-shot cross-dissolves. But it's a bit smoother um, because you're not having to stop and cut, you know, on every frame. Uh, It was all just one shot, uh, just using this, like, superimposed face, basically. Yeah. It was kind of cool. What did you think? I agree with what you're saying. Like, cool effect, things like that. I felt like the makeup was lazy, man. Yeah, it it's was like the it's actual... not very inspired at all. No, no, the actual makeup job was was lazy because yes. it is. It's just Wolfman without the prosthetics, which means it's not as good as Wolfman. Yeah. So we've kind of discussed how this straddles the line between horror and um, detective mystery thriller. Mm-hmm. Do we want to rank it? Like it's definitely a monster movie. Because there's a monster in it. But, like, King Kong is a monster movie. We haven't ranked that. So we really, what we need to figure out is, is it horror or thriller? I don't know, man. Um, I I totally buy your argument about it starts in horror and ends in horror and therefore is horror. But, like, so much of the middle of the movie is, you know, about finding clues and talking to witnesses. There's an inquest scene in the middle of this movie that you didn't even mention in the plot summary because it's not really important, but, like, after Kate dies, they go and they hold, like, a grand jury inquest to determine whether it was murder or not. And that's, like, ten minutes in the middle of the movie of, like, legal drama shit. I don't know. Um, And I always think about, like, for me, a big difference is, you know, do you have a hero who's working to track down the thing? And we do. And that, to me, usually marks, like, more of a thriller than a horror movie. Because we're not really, like... Like I said, if we, if our main character, if our protagonist had been Helga, even with the detectives, if our protagonist had been Helga, but once the detectives arrive, Helga kind of vanishes from the movie until she has to get... Um, Kidnapped. Yeah, she has to get captured at the end. Like, if we had stayed with Helga, that's a horror movie. But we spend so much more time with the detectives who aren't... At no point in the movie are they threatened by the monster. The only threats against them are the servants and the doctor who are trying to... Right, they're trying to cover up evidence. They're not even physically threatening the detectives. They're just threatening the success of their investigation. Yeah, it's it really comes down to what this film emphasizes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are survivors Mm -hmm. in this film. Helga, that's, that's pretty much it. But, like... You know, she's survived the curse. She survived being kidnapped by her werewolf brother. Mm-hmm. Um, she must feel, like, really um, betrayed. Because she was, like, getting... Like, her best friend is Dr. Colbert, mm-hmm. who was, like, secretly trying to cure Oliver. But, like, that secret and, like, an obstruction of the detective's investigation led to her being in direct danger. Like... Everyone, even the servants, like, she, I don't think she can trust anyone anymore. Right, but the movie doesn't give a shit about any of that. Exactly. The movie doesn't show any of that. The second we shoot Oliver, that's the last we see of either of them. Because the next scene, that epilogue scene, is just the doctor and the two detectives. And everyone's smiling and the sun is shining. Right, we don't, we don't stick with the victims. And it's never, we never, I never even really feel like when the monster gets Helga, like when Oliver's traipsing across the moors with Helga in her arms, I never even really feel like the emphasis is on her because she's asleep when he picks her up. Passed out because she screams and shit. Right, so she's not, like, reacting to him as he's carrying her. It feels like the emphasis on the movie is more like, will Curtis catch up in time than what will the monster do to her? Yeah. You know, and those are similar types of tension and suspense but the emphasis is just a little bit different when you have, you know, when you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, l- let me just put this out there. It is tepid mm-hmm. to a fault. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis on detective things rather than horror is an attempt to water it down. Mm-hmm. I think that they are trying to do too many things with a single film. They're trying to set up this these two detectives for a spinoff. Mm-hmm. They're trying to cash in on... The Wolfman. Um, they're trying to... Even the narrative itself feels like it's doing a bit too much. Mm-hmm. So it just feels a little too scatterbrained, ironically. Despite... I think what's throwing us off is the visuals being so 
perfect. Yes, the visuals are exactly what you want out of a horror movie. The other thing here is, like, you could say that it's a horror movie where the detective elements have watered it down. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure it's not a detective movie with horror elements put in to give it more edginess. Yeah. Right? Like, like that's my issue here. Yeah. Like, if we think about Dark Eyes of London, like, that movie was a horror movie with detective elements thrown in. Yes. Um, because of the emphasis on, like, examining the dead bodies, seeing Bela Lugosi sink into mud oh. in the Thames. Like, there's, there's different... It's all just what the emphasis is. Yeah, it's, it's what, you know, what does the movie care about, right? It's, it's the same thing with, like, you know... This is getting ahead of ourselves by quite a bit, but, like, I've talked about it in past episodes, so I'll talk about it again. I pretty strongly feel that Silence of the Lambs isn't horror. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people consider it horror, but I consider it thriller. And a big part of why I consider it thriller is because the emphasis is on Clarice catching Buffalo Bill uh, and following clues and figuring things out and, you know, will she get to him in time? And, you know... Yes, she's in jeopardy at the end when she's in, like, the basement, but heroes are always put in jeopardy. Like, that's how it is. She's not in jeopardy the way a victim is, because she's the hero. She has a gun, and she's with the FBI, and the, you know, and then she rescues herself, right? Like, that's the point of the movie, is her, like, kind of coming into her own. And there's also horror elements with, like, Lecter and him getting free and all that kind of stuff, but he's not the focus of the movie. He doesn't become the focus until the next movie. All of this is to say that if I were to compare Silence of the Lambs to The Undying Monster, I would say Silence of the Lambs is more horror than The Undying Monster is. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally don't feel Silence of the Lambs is horror. Mm-hmm. So I don't really think you can call Undying Monster horror either, just because the way that the narrative is set up doesn't emphasize the horror. It's just trying to spice up a detective story by having there be a monster in it because lycanthropes are hot right now, basically. (laughs) They're the hot new trend. Obviously, it would be easier to decide if it was horror or not if the movie itself was not trying to play both sides of the fence, right? Like, if it made a call one way or the other. But I think that if we ranked it, it would be rewarding that ambiguity. And I don't think, because it would be treating that ambiguity as if it was purposeful. And it's not. It's, mm-hmm. it's lazy and it's refusing to make a call as opposed to keeping things ambiguous. And I think we shouldn't be rewarding a movie for saying, maybe I'm horror because I might have a werewolf in me. You know? Yeah. That's that's a really good point. And if this movie had been made before Wolfman, or, you know, a few years earlier, I might be more inclined to put it on the list as like, oh, this is a step towards legitimate lycanthrope movies. But we've had Wolfman, so this more just feels like a cash-in. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with all of this. Okay. Alright, so then... Um... The Undying Monster is going to be going on the miscellaneous part of the list. Uh, You can see this list at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You'll be able to find links to other episodes that we've mentioned, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest the not ranking, I guess, Mm -hmm. of The Undying Monster, or the ranking of any other film, you can drop us a line there. Or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. We actually had an appeal episode go up a week or so ago. Um, so that was on Freaks, uh, originally ranked at number 27. Did it stay there? Listen to find out. <laughs> so Scream Scene updates every Wednesday. Uh, and you can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or your podcasting Uh, service of choice through our RSS feed. If you listen to the show on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, we'd really appreciate it if you did that. Um, Otherwise, we'd also appreciate it if you shared the show uh, on social media or, you know, in real life. Uh, Just tell a friend about it. Share the love. 
Another way you can help out the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at higher levels, such as $5, enjoy weekly bonus audio featuring cut content from past episodes, and at $10, enjoy horror fiction that I write that does not appear anywhere else. If we reach our Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing an extra fifth episode every month covering horror-adjacent movies that uh, otherwise we would not be covering for the list. Like Twilight. Or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Or the 1999 Mummy. Or the Addams Family. Or Young Frankenstein. Or Clue. Oh, Clue would be so good. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Alright, so Ben, this is two movies in a row that we have put on the miscellaneous list. Yes, that's true. Uh, The next movie, what do you think are the chances of us actually ranking it? What are we watching? I think the chances are pretty high, Sarah. I will let the creatures of the night know that you might want to, like, carve out a chunk of time for the next episode, because I feel like it might dethrone Bride of Frankenstein as our longest episode, (laughs) because we're going to have a lot to talk about uh, next week, because we are watching the first of Val Luton's series of RKO horror films. We are watching Jacques Tourneur's Cat People, starring Simone Simon. I love this movie so much. It's it, a cats? really great one. There's are there? Ah, ah. There are cats. Sure. But are there yes. cat people? Yes. Uh, yes, we're going to have a lot to talk about, I think, about this one. So be sure to tune in next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.